More than 20 years ago, I first came across a copy of the published text in 1661 of Henri de Maupas de Tours' Oraison Funèbre for Vincent de Paul. I immediately recognized its importance as the first public presentation of Monsieur Vincent's life and works after his death. As I read the manuscript and did some preliminary research, I became just as interested in the panegyrist and author, Bishop Henri de Maupas de Tours, and the genre of the Oraison Funèbre. In addition, the lengthy and fulsome dedication of the published work to Cardinal Mazarin was intriguing, as were the other textual references which opened windows into Vincent's 17th-century French world and his place in it. I was convinced of the importance of undertaking the first English translation of the Oraison Funèbre, fully annotating the text and suggesting its contextualization in Vincentian historiography. The translated and annotated text is preceded by three introductory chapters. In the first, I outline the life and career of Henri de Maupas de Tours to explain how he came to be chosen to deliver Monsieur Vincent's Oraison Funèbre. In the second chapter, I review and analyze the content of the funeral oration and its distinctive contribution to Vincentian historiography. In the final chapter, I summarize the course of the canonization cause of Vincent de Paul, for which the oraison served as the starting gun. More than 275 years have passed since Monsieur Vincent's canonization, and the image of the haloed saint holding foundlings tenderly in his arms speaks to the compelling popular vision of him today as charity saint. This depiction, while true enough, has tended to turn him into a rather one-dimensional figure. Too little remains in the popular imagination of his compelling lifelong struggle for conversion. Too little memory remains of his very human faults and even his dark side. Too little memory remains of the pastoral zeal of the great priest and effective evangelizer. Too little memory remains of the hopeful ardency of the church reformer. Too little memory remains of the brilliant, detailed organizer and no-nonsense businessman. The great challenge of contemporary Vincentian historiography is the contextualized recovery and reinterpretation, not of St. Vincent de Paul, but rather of Vincent de Paul the person. This requires temporarily putting aside the title of saint and recapturing his life as much as possible as it unfolded decision by decision, situation by situation within the complex realities of 17th century France. The monumental recovery, translation, and annotation of the extant correspondence, conferences, and documents of Vincent de Paul is the essential beginning point of this effort. However, these letters, conferences, and documents themselves must also be critically contextualized as an essential part of their ongoing interpretation. The value of Maupas de Tours' Oraison Funèbre is more than just the role it played in preparing the way for Louis Abelie and the eventual canonization of Vincent de Paul. Its wider value lies in being the first public reflection on his life and works by those who knew and admired him at the moment that he passed from the scene. Together with the notes of Brother Louis Robineau, the Abelie biography, and the cost volumes, Maupas de Tours' Oraison Funèbre is a source which now, fully annotated, can contribute to the contextualization and reinterpretation of the life of Vincent de Paul. To His Eminence, Monsignor, someone once observed that when the great and powerful exercise their authority, they naturally inspire a certain fear in persons who are timid. 
After their deaths, however, they no longer have the power to inhibit either the freedom of speech or of pens that can then attack their memory with impunity, publicly censuring their lives and their actions. As for myself, Monsignor, I believe all reasonable people will acknowledge it was heaven itself which raised you to the position of trust and glory you hold. This fact will overcome the jealousy of the great, the passions of the populace, and the fickleness of the present age to establish an enduring respect and honor for your name. Envy will be forced to recognize the true merit of your conduct so that even your harshest critics will have to acknowledge you as the most illustrious guardian of the public welfare. This will be so because you have always sacrificed your personal interests in order to end the war, establish peace among the nations, and restore universal harmony. It is well known, Monsignor, that your eminence entered into office when the war was already underway, and that you have happily made our great monarch victorious both in this armed struggle and in the midst of great civil disturbances. During the king's minority, you upheld the crown and the person of the king, marking the years awaiting his coming of age with victories. It is also known that the late king, Louis the Just, of most glorious memory, and his minister, the great Cardinal de Richelieu, so greatly esteemed the powerful genius and rare talents of your eminence that they judged you worthy to be entrusted with the most precious interests of our monarchy. Under your care, the most beautiful and whitest of lilies has blossomed, displaying a purity, innocence, and faith, surpassing all our hopes and answering all our prayers. You have, Monsignor, won victory laurels for the king in war and olive branches for him in peace. You gave a glorious hint of what was to come on the famous day at Casal, when, at the risk of your own life, you stopped two powerful armies from going into battle. And it must be said, Your Eminence, that you continued this same generous conduct when you spared the lives of those who, possessing a less heroic virtue, had attacked you. Yet you have done something even greater than this, Monseigneur. You have chosen to honor, with the favors at your disposal, those persons of a less heroic virtue whom you could have made the objects of your just anger. Making your magnanimity and your courage complete, you repaid the injuries you received with acts of kindness, so the enemies you defeated have been forced to exchange their arms for sentiments of gratitude for your great deeds. But above all, Monsignor, your eminence should know that by bringing peace to Europe, you have, in one fell swoop, accomplished one of the greatest deeds possible, thus making yourself the benefactor both of the people and of the world's greatest crowns. It is because of all of this, Monsignor, that public opinion admires your eminence's conduct. My vocation requires me to judge everything in the light of the gospel and to refrain from praising any actions that do not conform to the church's teachings. Thus, I want to add my own veneration of your eminence's actions, especially for those that are perhaps lesser known and might even appear at first to be relatively insignificant. Your eminence, I know that in the king's council, the queen was able to observe firsthand the actions of the late Monsieur Vincent, superior general of the mission, and that she has spoken publicly about his virtues. After this great man's death, she promised to protect the members of his congregation. She has said she esteems the works of these good priests. She has also said she has no doubt the prayers of this great servant of God were instrumental both in bringing about peace and the king's subsequent marriage. I also recall, Monsignor, 
on the day when I had the honor of being deputed by the bishops to speak to your eminence concerning an affair of great importance for the faith, you told me with such good grace that you would willingly shed your own blood in defense of the church's interests. Thus, Monsignor, I dedicate this funeral oration to your eminence. Perhaps it will better reveal my motivations which are innocent and in no way mercenary. My only motive is to acknowledge the debt I owe your eminence for your promise to protect my diocese, a promise you made in the presence of the deputation of 14 of our great prelates who accompanied me to the court at Fontainebleau in support of my rights, rights which are inherent to our shared Episcopal office. It is true, Monsignor, that your eminence has graciously offered me other benefices, and I owe you the same obligation of gratitude as if I had accepted them. Since then, however, I have lost my nephew in military service of the king so that my family is almost extinct, leaving me nothing else. Monsignor, I believe it is by the action of God's divine providence that I have been reduced to this present state where I have nothing more to lose. Therefore, I will make good use of my disgraces so that when I speak of the respect everyone should have for your great actions, the public will have reason to believe I am freely and faithfully offering you the dedication of my entire life. Monseigneur, I am your eminence's most humble and obedient servant, Henri, Bishop of Le Puy. Part 1. His Humility The Brother Who Is Praised in All the Churches for His Preaching of the Gospel The praise we give to the memory of the just is a well-deserved tribute and offers a blameless homage. Since the praise we give them is also part of the praise we are obliged to offer to God, Meanwhile, there are other venal and mercenary souls who merit only eternal scorn because they have no fear or sorrow for having prostituted their consciences to the attractions of sensual delights and to the interests of mere worldly fortune and ambition. These people should be scorned because by rejecting grace, which is the solid foundation and the source of all true praise, they have dried up the spring at its very source. In contrast to these people, there are other generous souls who, unconcerned with these perverse activities, spend their lives concerned only with spiritual matters. St. Bernard of Clairvaux described these persons as those earthly inhabitants whose lives are heavenly. They merit true praise because of their virtue and discretion and because they desire no other guide for their public and private lives than the gospel and no other foundation for their lives than that of grace. They especially rely on that grace which, in the words of the first of the apostles, makes it possible for those souls who faithfully respond to its attraction to share in the divine nature. As St. Peter says, they share in the divine nature. Strengthened by this grace, these chosen souls share in the praise of God, and their glory is thus made part of the praise that they must render to God, for then everyone will receive praise from God. Now, Messieurs, without further delay, I will place before you a vivid and lifelike portrait of the great Vincent de Paul. I will tell you boldly and freely about the praise which is due to the story of his rare virtues, since it can be said of his very holy life and his very happy death that they were designed by grace and crowned by the gospel. Once again, that brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. For praise to be deserved, it must be given only in recognition of good works. However, too often praise is corrupted by the mouths of those who offer it and by the ears of those who listen to it. 
In this world, those who praise others out of weakness, selfishness, fear, or envy are often listened to as if they were a voice speaking from heaven. Yet this praise quickly degenerates into discordant and meaningless sounds. Thus, the pleasing harmony which should result from the concord of all the virtues becomes instead nothing more than a loud noise caused by false notes sounding from an instrument of deception and envy. However, in this case, messieurs, this is not what I am doing. If I praise the memory of the great Vincent de Paul, it is because, when I consider the profound humility and the perfect scorn this great man had for himself during his entire life, I cannot say enough to imbue you with an esteem for his virtues. His Humility There once was a philosopher who could not hide his vanity. He admitted that of all the songs he knew, he did not know of any he found to be more pleasing than those which sang his praises. Vincent de Paul Messieurs would not have had such profane thoughts. It was totally contrary to his modesty to say anything to his own advantage. In fact, anyone who said anything favorable about him cruelly tortured his humble soul. The one who praises me scourges me. Doubtlessly, this horror he had of being praised is difficult for us to understand. However, I can honestly testify before the most sacred altars, as I recall the conversations I had with him over the course of many years. I always found him to be the most admirable and literal example of Christian humility. To have observed the gestures, speech, room, food, clothing, and everything else that surrounded the eminent Vincent de Paul, who called himself a beggar, who I esteem as a saint, and whom you have so often admired, was to have encountered an example of perfect humility. Once again, the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. In this life, praise is all too often given to persons whose legacy is truly disgraceful and whose lives are stained by the record of their crimes. Public opinion, however, soon turns on them after their deaths. Meanwhile, in another, much longer life, their souls will be condemned to suffer agonies. They are praised where they are not. They are tormented where they are. In this case, however, our feeble praise is justly given, because both heaven and public opinion have crowned his heroic virtues with glory. Today, praise is given to those who are considered to be the famous and great, more often because of the enormity of their vices than because of the brilliance of their fortune and dignity. The pretext for this praise is an illusory virtue that hides the debaucheries and the extortions of an often tortured and scandalous life, a life which was dedicated to satisfying the most shameful passions and which hides under pretenses, impostures, and flattery the grievous truth which truly is worthy only of public scorn. One example of this type of praise is the funeral harangues given for those unfaithful cheaters whom the very great indulgence of the laws does not punish severely enough. These are the men who violate the rules governing coats of arms, debasing the laws of this heroic science by tracing false lines in their own genealogies. These men steal coats of arms from the most illustrious families, trying wrongly to have noble blood flow through their own obscure veins. Because of this behavior, they have in the past merited the chastisements of the highest tribunals of justice and the disfavor of our very great monarchs and sovereigns. These men behave in this way because they want to be raised up from the dust of their lowly births, even if it is at the expense of the tears and by the cruel shedding of the blood of the poor. 
These persons invent fantastic myths to add legitimacy and luster to their illegal titles. Thus, they should be considered as nothing less than the hereditary enemies and opponents of true virtue. These persons put together a confusing blend of both history and fable in order to forge, and then to wear, the fraudulent ornaments and the false fineries of an unworthy noble status. Thus, they find themselves simultaneously obliged to a double restitution, both for the praise they unworthily receive and for using their fraudulent honors to enrich themselves at the expense of widows. Messieurs, let us sigh on behalf of these unfortunate creatures and groan while we say together with the prophet Isaiah, Woe to those who tug at guilt with cords of perversity. Avarice and pride serve as their unfaithful and bloodthirsty counselors, inspiring both their contempt for the humility of the poor as well as their own mistreatment of these unfortunates. Meanwhile, we have the completely different example of Vincent de Paul, who glorified his lowliness and who made himself poor in order to enrich the poor. Come, you arrogant spirits who have nothing truly worthy of praise within you, you who are so full of vanity and a false sense of glory. Since you search in the quicksand of lies for your nobility, learn from a Latin poet who once said, Birth and ancestry, and that which we have not ourselves achieved, we can scarcely call our own. Or perhaps it is even better to say, Learn from the teaching of the great St. Ambrose and from the virtuous example of the great Vincent de Paul. True nobility belongs to those whose genealogy is based only on the practice of the virtues. Vincent de Paul was a person of humble birth, but he was a person of eminent virtue who is to be admired because of his humility. He concealed these eminent virtues with all his might, while he publicly spoke only of the lowliness of his birth. We honor the relics and the memories of Genevieve, a shepherdess, who guided her herds to the gates of Nanterre. We honor the iron plow of Isidore, a farmer from Spain. We recently have witnessed extraordinary public ceremonies honoring the relics of John of God, who in human eyes was an object of scorn. But I do not know if even these great souls welcome scorn as much as Vincent de Paul, who took great care always to live on this earth as the least among men. Moses, the great lawgiver of God's people, humbly took off his shoes and walked on the mountain in his bare feet. At the same time, he covered himself with a veil that hid the splendor of the brilliant light that shone from his face. This is the same image, messieurs, called to mind by Vincent de Paul's rare humility. He was entirely radiant, and his face shone with light like another Moses. Yet, he was the only one who could not see or appreciate the beauty of his own eminent virtues. As the sacred text says, he did not know that the skin of his face had become radiant while he conversed with the Lord. Or, as the learned Loranus also described them, the glimmering rays. Moses took off his shoes and walked in his bare feet in order to approach the mountain, and he covered the radiance of his face with a veil. Vincent openly spoke of the lowliness of his birth. He wanted everyone to see the dirt that covered his peasant feet. He wanted everyone to know that he was only the son of a farmer, and that in his youth he had tended flocks like another Moses. However, when it was a question of also being considered as a lawgiver like Moses, a man chosen by God's own hand to lead his people, 
This is when he covered his face in shame, wishing only to remain unnoticed. Nevertheless, messieurs, it is necessary that it be said freely and without any exaggeration that the hand of God chose Vincent de Paul to bring the tablets of the law to his people. It was through his admirable zeal and that of his worthy children that millions of souls have been sanctified through the work of the parish missions. It was he who procured the spiritual and temporal relief of entire provinces ruined by the evils of war. It was he who rescued millions of people from the gates of death. It was he who saved from ultimate disaster those unfortunate souls who, by a deadly combination of a profound ignorance of our faith's sacred mysteries and of the Christian truths necessary for salvation, as well as shameful lives marked by crime and licentiousness, seem destined never to know God except through the rigor of his judgments and the eternity of his punishments." Yes, messieurs, it is necessary to tell you that it was Vincent de Paul who all but changed the face of the church by means of the formation given to ecclesiastics belonging to the Tuesday conferences and by the numerous seminaries he established. It was he who, by means of the ordination exercises and other spiritual retreats, reestablished the clerical state to the glory of its primitive splendor. He lovingly opened his house his arms, and his arms to embrace all who came to him to benefit from being instructed in this holy school of true ecclesiastical discipline. It was he who rescued so many ministers of the altar who paid no attention to the rules of their vocation and who without fear and for profane reasons took part in sordid activities that reflected poorly on their sacred ministries. It was he who formed numerous important ecclesiastics to serve in many of our dioceses as vicars general, vice regents, promoters, and other officials. It was he who also provided numerous great prelates for France. Monsieur Vincent was the instrument chosen by the greatest designs of divine providence to be involved in all the most important activities that have given glory to God, been advantageous to our religion, and brought honor to the state. Nevertheless, even though this great man deserved many glorious rewards for his actions, he kept his merits completely hidden from view under the veil of his humility. In his fervent desire to be treated only as an object of the greatest contempt, he hid them under the cover of the darkest nights and in the depths of the profound abyss that were his view of his own nothingness. It is this consuming humility, messieurs, which merits our praise and the esteem of the angels. Once again, we say, the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Messieurs, you must not tolerate those petty, insolent spirits who are consumed by a vain concern for the advancement of their own fortune and who want you to listen to them as if they were oracles. These are the same men who want even the most insignificant of their actions to be praised and held over the heads of others. But the most effective remedy for their vain ambition is to make them realize they amount to little more than the dust of the earth from which they were made, and to which their mortal bodies will one day return in the decay of their tombs. As the Latin poet once observed, during the most beautiful and sunny days of the spring season, when the flowers first come to sweet bloom, bees leave the winter quarters of their hives and fly to find these new sources of honey. Sometimes they will also fly forth to do battle, for often discord accompanied by great agitation befalls two kings. They swarm densely, summoning the enemy with great clamor. 
However, the tumult of passion and these overwhelming struggles are brought to rest, checked by the tossing of a little dust. Here we find the puny remnants of human vanity. However, here we also find the beautiful remnants of the great Vincent de Paul's humility. We could say of him, even though his modesty would never have allowed it, that all the flowers growing in all the most beautiful gardens have neither the variety nor the beauty of his virtues that were displayed for everyone to see. The most virtuous and the greatest queen in all the world had the greatest admiration for his rare talents, grace, and holiness. The greatest figures of the church, court, and king's councils admired his virtue. Both the Louvre and the palace agreed he did infinite good, not only in Paris, but also throughout the kingdom, and indeed throughout the entire church of God. The entire world was warned by the holy zeal of his charity. None of this, however, ever shook the constancy of his humility. To uncover the full extent of his zeal, to uncover the full extent of his zeal, you would need to cross the seas and travel to the very limits of Christianity. You would also need to visit prisons in the darkest dungeons. You would need to visit all the places where the sick are to be found. You would need to go to the great general hospital. You would need to see the tears of the afflicted that he wiped away and the wounds he healed. You would need to see the indigent he clothed. You would need to see the five, six, or seven thousand people who, according to a reliable source, are assisted daily by the confraternities of charity he founded and the sisters and the ladies of charity whom he also founded. France, Savoy, Piedmont, Italy, Poland, and other faraway places all were the scenes of his charitable works and love. You would also need to descend into the galleys as he did to understand the compassion he had for these poor slaves. You would need to be chained yourself in order to be able to shatter the irons as he did and be a slave yourself as he was in order to bring liberty to captives. As he did, you would need to endure the cruelty of a galley master and to flinch under his lash. It would be necessary to have been a servant as he was of an alchemist, a Turk, and a renegade, and to have spared no effort or risk in working for the salvation of soul. Thus, you would need to go to Tunis and Algiers in the heart of Barbary to discover the full extent of his zeal. It would even be necessary to go as far as the Isles of Madagascar. To understand the zeal one must have for the extension of God's kingdom, one could also travel to the missions of Canada, Japan, China, Indochina, Laos, and Tonkin, where the fathers of the Company of Jesus have worked so worthily and so usefully, and where the people feel the effects of their charitable care and zeal. In accomplishing all of this, many of the principal members of his congregation were exposed to the furor and perfidy of the pagans, the plague and the plague-stricken, as well as a thousand other dangers. All this was necessary in order to extend the conquest of the gospel by planting the standard of the faith in countries lost to the faith and in previously unknown countries ravaged by paganism. Again, you will see that nothing could shake the constancy of his humility. After this, messieurs, allow me to tell you two things. First, what I am telling you is not a myth or mere ostentatious boasting but rather it is a true account of an inexhaustible fountain of virtues. Vincent de Paul's courage was above all the encouragement of hope against all fears. 
the cloying flattery of the members of the court, the approval of the great and the most powerful, the charm of the most charming, the passion of the most passionate, the violence of the most violent. All of these combined were incapable of disturbing Vincent de Paul's generous heart. All of these did not affect the constancy of his humility in the least. In a word, he knew that human beings are always prone to seek that which is the sweetest, the most agreeable, the most innocent, the most prosperous, and the most advantageous to their own interests, even above the interest of God's glory. He also realized that giving in to these merely human concerns was a terrible danger that could threaten the entire ruin of his congregation and the true interests of God's glory. Again, however, all these considerations were incapable of shaking the confidence of this great soul, which was firmer than a rock amidst the waves of the sea, because it had been built on a rock. The rock was the Christ. It is this rock that saved him from the fury of the winds, the storms, and the anger of the waves. Thus, we can say of him what St. John Chrysostom said of the apostles. For when the waves of the world were beating against them, they stood firmer than a rock and dispersed them all. For this was a man who had no other support for his cares, his conduct, and for all the great works of God's providence that were confided to him than the pure teachings of the gospel, which are incapable of either being evaded or defeated by any earthly crown or empire. Everyone knows he had a profound respect for bishops at a time when the sacred mitres were often treated with scorn. One day, speaking to a bishop, he said to him, Monseigneur, never betray the teachings of the Gospels. After hearing all this, messieurs, don't you agree that we have good reason to say, the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the Gospel, when we speak of an incomparable man who is so totally void of false wisdom and instead filled so completely with the wisdom of the Gospel. One day at court, a great noble of the kingdom who had demanded a benefice for one of his sons, and who knew that Monsieur Vincent, as a member of the Council of Conscience, had opposed his request, reproached him in these words, Why are you opposing me, Monsieur Vincent? Here is the response Monsieur Vincent gave him, an answer filled with both a perfect meekness and firmness. Monseigneur, I know the respect that I owe to you, but by the grace of God you have no power over my conscience. He discovered the perfect temperament by combining meekness and humility with a confidence that never gave way to merely human considerations. He knew that if humility is not also accompanied by strength, it has only the appearance of virtue and none of its effects. I know it is easy to be astonished by the success of all the activities he undertook in ways that were so totally contrary to the means which ordinarily would have been suggested by mere human prudence. This great success came about because he carefully worked to strip himself of his human spirit and to search for guidance only from the inspirations provided by God's Spirit. God, for his part, draws near to those who search for him, and he fills them with the light of his wisdom. He then brings about favorable conclusions to even the most difficult affairs, having but the gloomiest prospects of success, which ordinarily would make even the most prudent spirits grow faint. Like Mount Zion are they who trust in the Lord, unshakable, forever enduring, as mountains surround Jerusalem. On the contrary, worldly sages are the enemies of Christian sincerity because they have strayed through their intrigues only to find that their wisdom is confounded. 
but those who turn aside to crooked ways may the Lord send down with the wicked. The second thing I have to tell you, messieurs, is that during his lifetime, Vincent de Paul was the only one who was blind to his heroic virtues. The more highly you praised him to the heavens, the more he humbled himself in the obscurity of his lowly birth. When he first came to Paris, he hid his surname because he feared the name de Paul might be mistaken as a noble one. He thought if he introduced himself simply as Monsieur Vincent, as one might be informally introduced as Monsieur Pierre or Monsieur Jean, he would then be assumed to be someone who was unimportant. What could be a more direct proof of his humility than this innocent artifice? We know that when Caesar, Xenophon, Cato, Scylla, and Brutus wrote, they did so using pseudonyms so as to hide their accomplishments. But for someone to hide his name just because it is too beautiful, this is an example of rare modesty. We know that the Emperor Justinian wanted the Greek title for the office of the Knight Prefect to be changed because he thought it was too obscure and somber. When, in obedience to his order, this was done in the new law, the title of this prefect was changed to the People's Prefect. But you, Vincent de Paul, why did you change your name by hiding its better half? Since you kept watch during the disorders of the night in order to put a stop to the crimes which take place in these shadows, doubtlessly you could have borne both of these names, one which is somber and belongs to the night, and the other which is brilliant and belongs to the day. This was so because through your practice of the works of the light, you provided charitable relief for so many of the afflicted in the towns, countryside, and in the kingdom's great cities, for nothing escapes its heat. Thus, you were more useful to the public than the people's prefect of ancient times. Messieurs, do not think it is wrong to find the source of great deeds rooted in the illustrious names of those who perform them. According to Plato, Socrates said fathers should take particular care to give good names to their infants for the purpose of rooting them in the practice of virtue and to make them grow in public esteem, and also so their agreeable names might gain them a freer access to princes from whom they could hope to receive favor and graces. Doesn't it seem that the poet had also studied these laws when he said, everyone agrees that things often are what they are named. And since even the jurisprudence we teach says proper names should be appropriate to things. Doesn't St. Thomas Aquinas, the master of the sacred school, teach that names should be given with the intention of imparting the particular qualities associated with the chosen name? I can cite a number of examples of this truth that are found in Scripture, in Abram and Abraham, the father of the nations and the father of all believers, in Joseph, in whose name we find reflected both the progress of his fortunes and of his virtue. In order to testify to the plan that he had for saving the world, the Savior of our souls wanted to take the name of Jesus, which signifies Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Thus, shouldn't we conclude that it was by the singular action of heavenly providence that Vincent de Paul bore these two beautiful names of Vincent and de Paul? From this perspective, we can see that part of his generous labors and his illustrious victories can be attributed to the name Vincent and the rest to the name de Paul, in that he was the perfect imitator of the great St. Paul's zeal. Nevertheless, messieurs, preserving in the practice of humility from which he never strayed, he wished to remain unnoticed, 
or, as it is more accurate to say, he preferred to be thought of as being a man of no real importance. When he spoke of his educational background, he said he was only a weak fourth, but in fact he held a bachelor's degree in theology. He said this so often that most of the members of his own congregation mistakenly believed he had not been educated beyond the first classes of grammar. This is the only example we can find in his life of an exception to the candor of his soul, which was whiter than snow and purer than the lilies. He tolerated this violation of the usually inviolable laws of his honesty only because it was necessary that in this innocent quarrel between two of the most beautiful virtues, his humility should prevail, so that under the veil of his customary humility, the secrets of his most beautiful accomplishments would remain hidden. Once, at the height of a life-threatening illness, a famous Jesuit religious, it is to be noted how servants of God so often end up as friends, asked him during a visit, Monsieur, what are you thinking about at this moment? This holy and humble servant of God immediately responded, In a spirit of humility and with a contrite soul, receive us, O Lord. How could it be said that this great soul, so disengaged from the corruption of sin, merited nothing but punishments? In effect, messieurs, wasn't it necessary that a soul so dedicated to self-abandonment and which throughout every moment of life had sought nothing other than the glory of God would have had to descend far into the deepest abyss to establish the source of its humility? And messieurs, what is this ultimate abyss at the bottom of the earth? It is hell, that sad, eternal dwelling place for God's enemies. Its flames are blazing fire. This holy man, who was so full of God's spirit, was also filled with the spirit of abandonment, so admirably described by the great St. Teresa of Avila. O greatness, which speaks of the infinite grandeur of the essence of God. O great nothingness, which speaks of the infinite smallness of the creature when compared to the grandeur of God. Messieurs, I dare to say that this great man revealed what he honestly thought about himself when he said he was worse than the devil. He also encouraged the members of his congregation to regard themselves as being more contemptible than even the damned, and to consider themselves as having a place even lower in creation than the devils. He noted, The devils have only sinned once, while, alas, how many are our offenses and how numerous are our sins. The devils have not had the example of the Son of God to humble them as we have had, and they have not had the same opportunities to do penance that God has given us. Have we not had many opportunities that we have not taken advantage of to wipe away our faults? If the demons were again given the freedom and the grace that we have had to honor and to serve the adorable majesty of our God, they might well acquit themselves in a way that is superior to our efforts. By what can we be glorified? By our birth? Alas, don't the devils have a nobler heritage than we do? What about our knowledge? Ha! Huh. The least of the devils has more than all the people put together. All the libraries and all the universities of the world have nothing to compare to the knowledge possessed by the lost spirits. What then is there that we can make the subject of our vanity besides our good works? O oh my God, who can do anything by himself? You alone, O oh my God, are the author of all that is good, and the one who attributes this honor to himself, messieurs, serves as the servant of the devil and the enemy of his creator by taking away the glory which belongs only to God. My glory I give to no other. Messieurs, it is not my mere words that now move your hearts. 
Rather, it is a spirit of Vincent de Paul, a spirit which through the expression of its charity and humility ascended to the highest heavens from the depths of the greatest abysses. This was astonishing to witness, messieurs, because through his incredible humility, he was able to compartmentalize his heart. On the one hand, he could feel the fires of hell. Simultaneously, however, because of the ardor of his zealous charity, he could also feel those very different flames which resemble the innocent flames of the seraphim that burn in heaven. This is the miraculous genius of the great Vincent de Paul, whose abundant grace, fidelity, and invincible courage today is the object of our wonder, and who for countless centuries to come will receive the admiration of God's church. While awaiting the full story of his life to be written, it is here that we must cut our discourse short, not saying anything more about the practices of his humility, because it is now necessary to pass to a recital of some of the effects of his love and charity. This will form the second and last part of the discourse. The second part, his charity. Yes, messieurs, we must say that Vincent de Paul has given us reason to see that his purpose in life was to imitate the great St. Paul's zeal. This worthy superior general of the mission was a true imitator of the great apostle and often repeated with him, what will separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, etc. Or as St. John Chrysostom said, indeed, one may see he was always inflamed with a wonderful love for the faithful. Vincent de Paul, what was said about the apostle can also be said about you. Didn't he also say with the apostle, who is weak and I am not weak? Was there ever an opportunity for helping the afflicted when he did not tenderly embrace them, when he did not zealously run to their aid? One can say of him without any exaggeration what St. Jerome said of Fabiola. She so wonderfully relieved the diseases of the suffering poor that many of the healthy began to envy the sick. I won't even mention the three or four hospitals he established in Paris or those that he established in the provinces, or this discourse would go on forever. With regard to the galleys, there are just two things about him that I am going to mention. Once, while he was on a sea voyage, he was taken captive by pirates and put in chains along with many other persons who were with him on the same vessel. They were then taken to Tunis, where this young slave joined with the others, who were to be companions in his punishment, but not in his virtue. However, among the many captives, there were some who were able to appreciate the modesty, the sweetness, the patience, and the thousand other admirable qualities which were found in the person of Vincent de Paul. While the others complained of the rigors they endured, Vincent de Paul recognized them as being nothing other than their destiny under the direction of divine providence, to which he yielded with love. While the others complained inside in the midst of their many sufferings, totally to the contrary, he found delight in his captivity, since it was God's will. One could hear in their cries and sobs evidence of the bitterness and sorrow that afflicted their hearts. Meanwhile, however, Vincent de Paul sang the Canticles of Zion in the middle of this Babylon. His master's wife listened to him chanting the Psalms of David, and her heart was touched. She then spoke with her husband. Instead of carrying the infection of sin as the words of Eve, our first mother, did in carrying original sin to the first humans, her words led him to choose a better, happier life. Instead of approving his apostasy, she reproached her husband for his crime. At the same time, she pointed to the example of the constancy and piety of this amiable captive. 
By his prayers and works of charity, Vincent de Paul so influenced his master and some others of his household that the master arranged for them to escape to Avignon. Here, he renounced the Quran and was received back into the bosom of the church. Here is one of the first conquests of Vincent de Paul. Here we find the prelude to the great conquest that one day he would achieve through the missions, where he saved so many souls from being shipwrecked and lost to slavery in order to gain them for God. Secondly, I will consider the concern that he had for the sufferings of the convicts in the galleys at Marseille. He could not witness their miseries, nor could he tell their story to the charitable women whom he sent to help them without being bathed in tears. Madame, he opened your eyes to their pitiful condition, being covered with vermin and maggots. Thus he could say, together with Job, If I must call corruption my father and the maggot my sister. Despite the vermin and the maggots, he embraced these poor people as if they were his brothers. Can't you still see him giving his always fervent exhortations or spiritual conferences that were filled with the fire of his charity, which given his good-natured heart he could not restrain? Was it the urgency of his love or the tenderness of his compassion he wanted to be silent about, but which he only rendered even more eloquent by his efforts to mute them? O divine mercy of the chaste heart of my Savior, Jesus Christ, that set fire to the heart of Vincent de Paul, explain these mysteries to us. Words failed him, and tears fell from his eyes as he was moved by his love and the pain of seeing the sight of the miseries of his neighbor, who was dearer to him than life itself. For tears on occasion carry the weight of speech. His eyes expressed themselves eloquently, even without his having to speak. For madame, you will agree that it took only one sigh from him, requesting ten pistoles for the poor, and you would generously open your purses." His tears gave birth to yours. You then join the sentiments of your good hearts with your own compassion. And thus, messieurs, isn't it natural to expect that a mixture that was both so innocent and so divine would produce so much fire as well as so many tears? I will not speak of the role that our great queen, the mother of our great king, played through her generous almsgiving on these occasions. Her own modesty in this matter causes me to remain silent. But I must tell you that one brother from Monsieur Vincent's house made 53 trips to Lorraine, carrying a total of almost 150,000 livres, without ever being captured. He passed right through the midst of the soldiers without ever losing anything. Sometimes he carried 20,000 livres, and often even greater sums, even though he had no other escort than the prayers and the charity with which he had been sent. I am not going to tell you at any length about the quantities of cloth and clothing that he sent to Lorraine in order to help clothe so many honest women and so many good religious who suffered because of their extreme poverty. Thus, these women found themselves wearing wedding gowns since they were wearing the clothing of charity, the spouse of holy souls, and the queen of all the virtues. Should you not be told, messieurs, that one of the subjects of this great missionary transported more than 8,000 pieces of clothing to yet another province, or that still another brought more than 500,000 livres of relief to yet another province? No, no, messieurs, we should no longer be silent about these events. On the contrary, you should know about them. You should know it was Monsieur Vincent who provided the manpower and the funds to clean up the manure heaps, the cesspools, and the bodies of dead horses, which were the cause of the deadly plague in the city of Etampes. He also did this after the Battle of Rothel, when he arranged for the burial of 1,200 to 1,500 bodies, 
which were beginning to cause an unbearable stench, as well as an epidemic which brought about the entire ruin of these sad regions. But, messieurs, the charity of this worthy founder and first general of the mission was a consuming charity, like that of the great St. Paul whose name he bore. He was never satisfied with his zeal, even if he had given all that he had to help the afflicted. He wanted to be able to say what St. Paul had written to the Corinthians. We have spoken frankly to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. Or, as the same apostle said in chapter 12, children ought not to save for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be utterly spent for your sakes. Messieurs, you witnessed the great flood which brought a deluge to the gates of Paris and which in the countryside reduced entire villages to famine. But you did not see what was carefully hidden from you until now. Yes, messieurs, it is necessary to tell you that Monsieur Vincent opened the granaries of his own house of Saint-Lazare, even though what was stored there was needed to feed the numerous members of his own family. With this grain, he had a great amount of bread made to relieve the people's hunger. This was distributed by boat, a ladder being used to carry the bread to the windows of the higher floors of their homes where the poor had taken refuge, suffering both from the floodwaters and their hunger. He risked the lives of his own good servants, who in their desire to save others often found themselves in danger of drowning. I cannot but tell you that in the city of Toul, these great missionaries, animated by the spirit of their general, never used for themselves any part of the alms that were distributed to the poor. But didn't they, messieurs, deserve twice as much? After all, isn't it only fair that he who serves at the altar should be supported from the income of his priestly ministry? Yes, messieurs, such a course of action undoubtedly would be blameless, since these laws of recompense are legitimate. But the zealous impulses of the ardent charity of Vincent de Paul followed even higher principles. I will most gladly spend and be utterly spent for your sakes. This was said by the incomparable St. Paul, and was said again in our day by the incomparable Vincent de Paul. You have seen his works in Paris, and I have seen them in my own diocese. I had never before seen, nor have I ever seen since, such prodigious generosity, even more than can be expected from a father, as evidenced in the order given by Monsieur Vincent to distribute the grain stores of Saint-Lazare in such profusion. Vincent de Paul, your own family was so numerous, and you had put it into debt by the alms that your prudence and charity already had given. But this did not matter to him, messieurs, for he saw how much his granaries could furnish, and his charity was more abundant than the contents of all these warehouses combined. For three months he distributed armfuls of bread daily at the doors of Saint-Lazare, to feed 2,000, sometimes as many as 3,000 or 3,500. Lavishly they give to the poor. Their prosperity shall endure forever. He did so much good when the harvest failed that he was able to keep the public peace. O adorable providence of my God, by which you hold in your hands both abundance and famine. By this same providence, you in your justice mete out both the punishments that lead to the gates of death and the favors of your great mercy that rescues from the tomb. It seems clear you wanted to honor the virtue of the great Vincent de Paul by repeating the miracles performed by the great prophet Elijah. A charitable widow nourished the prophet with a little oil and a little wheat. And in order to repay this generosity, which appeared to be so insignificant, she heard Elijah pronounce these wonderful words of blessing on behalf of God. 
For the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour shall not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry, until the day when the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Doesn't it seem, messieurs, that the same thing could be said about the charitable Vincent de Paul? Come, daring and charitable father of the poor, open your granaries, and from your house of San Lazar, feed 2,000 to 3,500 of the hungry every day for months, since the jar of flour shall not go empty, nor the jug of oil run dry. The contents of your warehouses were nothing compared to the merit of your prayers, your alms, and your penances. These brought an end to all the troubles in Paris, bringing abundance to this great city and the blessing of heaven on all those who belong to your family. Were there not, messieurs, early signs of this generosity? Once, when he was a young boy, he was carrying his father's grain from the mill to the granary when he distributed the wheat to the poor and then returned home. As St. Peter Chrysogelus said, O oh, the lovable prodigal! If a father could find in his heart the love necessary to forgive a prodigal son who had been lost in debauchery, what can we expect from a holy prodigal who lived on earth for almost a century as if he was living in exile in a foreign land, and who has now, as we hope, finally returned to heaven to live in his celestial homeland and receive a loving embrace from the father of the human family? Quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Doubtlessly, he could say of his youth what was said by Job, that God was guiding me even from my mother's womb. You know from the account of his actions and the sentiments of his own heart that God had created him to be poor only in order to serve the poor. Monsieur Vincent said, We are for the poor, the poor are ours. Just as a hunter chases his game everywhere, wherever we find les miserables, it is necessary for us to assist them at all costs. Here, messieurs, is the example of a charitable heart dedicated in the highest degree to a perfect charity towards the neighbor, in imitation of the heart of God, which is to say that he embraced everyone and refused no one. Be merciful, just as also your father is merciful. It is true to say that his charitable rule of being concerned first for the needs of strangers rather than for the members of his own community at times threatened them with having to depend on alms. But no, messieurs, not even these threats could stop the outpouring of his charity. For the person who gives out of fear is less courageous than the person who gives with hope and delights in what he is doing. As he said, let us take care of the affairs of God, and God without doubt will take good care of ours. What difference does it make whether we become beggars ourselves if we are happy to be able to relieve the poor? His Confidence in Divine Providence one evening, he was told that there wasn't enough food in the refectory stores to provide for the community's dinner the next day. Ah, my brother, he said, what happy news, since it gives us the opportunity to place our confidence solely on God. Cast your cares upon the Lord, who will give you support. His confidence was not in vain, for that same night someone made a considerable donation. Imagine a man who is not only responsible for a large community— and who freely gave extraordinary spiritual and physical nourishment to 20 or 30 persons each day during the course of the year, but who also at the same time had many others residing in his house, making their spiritual exercises, retreats, and preparing for their general confessions. 
I have seen around 100 or 120 young men prayerfully undertaking spiritual 10-day retreats led by the late Monsieur Vincent. I have given these ordination retreats to those who are preparing to receive orders. All these men are received freely at the cost of the House of Saint-Lazare, which has no endowment to support this charitable work. Monsieur Vincent and these good Messieurs of Saint-Lazare gladly welcomed Messieurs Le Ordonnan, gladly welcomed Messieurs the Ordonnans as if they were receiving treasures. These men came from everywhere to receive help from this charitable father's heart. One could attribute to him as a most appropriate description what Valerian the Great said of Gilius. His house resembled a bountiful store. It seems that he was not mortal, for his kind heart understood well people's needs. His disinterested charity. Is there a more disinterested charity which does not seek its own interests? Monsieur Vincent never said or did anything to acquire anything for himself. He never thought of trying to procure even the smallest benefits for one of his own, even though he often had the opportunity to do this. One day he said, I will not take any steps or do anything to procure any advantage for us. He would rather have put his own house in debt than miss an opportunity to perform a good work. Happy the rich man who is found without fault, who turns not aside after gain. Who is he that we may praise him? If I had the time, there are more edifying stories that I could tell you, especially concerning the charitable assistance that he gave to those poor sick whose flesh was consumed by ulcers and decay. He gathered them into his little carriage that, in his humility, he remarkably called his ignominy in order to carry them to the hospital. Some rely on chariots, others on horses, but we on the name of the Lord our God. His was a consuming charity that was without limits. His heart was like a vast sea. All rivers go to the sea, yet never does the sea become full. Everyone who entered into the sea of his charity was received there. All sorts of persons, the barbarian and the Scythian, the Jew, the infidel, the just and the sinner, all found themselves immersed in the flood of his good works. I have known many servants of God, but I have never known any that were the equal of the two great servants of God, the late Monsieur l'Abbé Ollier and the late Monsieur Vincent. Because of the eminence of their virtues, they were perfectly united by the sacred ties of a holy and perfect friendship. Monsieur Vincent and Monsieur Ollier were both heavily burdened with many important affairs which they had undertaken for the glory of God. Yet if you had any extraordinary spiritual or physical pain and you asked for their help, they would drop whatever they were doing in order to console your heart in its affliction. Thus, I will say of them what St. Anselm and Theophilactus both said about St. Paul. He suffered his own pains, while at the same time he relieved those of everyone else. How many times after conversing with them did you say, were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke of us on the way? How many times have you said, in adoring the infinite goodness of our God, Oh, how good is God's heart! Or, Oh, how loving is God's heart, since he is the source of such courageous actions, since he has put such good hearts into the chests of men. One was to be the spiritual son, and the other was to be the spiritual father. Monsieur Vincent was the first spiritual director of Monsieur l'Abbé Ollier, and it was because of this relationship that Monsieur Ollier called him his father. Later, Father Charles de Condran 
the general of the fathers of the oratory of Jesus, was also the director of this young abbe. Thus, he had two of the greatest masters of the spiritual life to form him and to make him capable of reaching the highest levels of perfection. In time, this direction bore fruit as divine providence destined him to establish the beautiful seminary of Saint-Sulpice, and he became the father and teacher of many virtuous ecclesiastics. As I speak, these priests are working in our diocese with an abundance of graces and blessings. One could say that Monsieur Vincent was, in a manner of speaking, the first to have sown the seeds of these rich priestly harvests with the establishment of seminaries at the Collège de Bons Enfants, near St. Victor's Gate, of St. Charles, near Saint-Lazare, for younger seminarians, and also the seminary of Annecy in Savoy, for the examination of ordinands, and of so many other establishments, some very small and others very large, some for youngsters and others for young men. He established all of these through his zeal and his charity. His pardon of injuries. His charity had no limits. He generously gave his blessings, just as he willingly suffered injuries and always returned good for evil. One day, in the presence of the late Madame, the Marquise de Magnolet, of most blessed memory, he exhorted a certain young lady to reform her life. This creature did not want to pay any attention to his holy advice, and instead of being grateful for her benefactor's charity, she threw a chair at his head. Monsieur Vincent received this attack with a smile, and he continued his conversation as if nothing had happened. On another occasion, a noble who correctly assumed that Monsieur Vincent had opposed his request for a benefice publicly upbraided him with atrocious insults, which he accepted with a heroic meekness. The Queen Mother was informed of this incident and wanted to banish the offending noble from court. However, Monsieur Vincent knelt before Her Majesty to obtain his pardon. One day, because of the great weakness in his legs, he was riding through the streets on his miserable 24-year-old horse. A man who was drunk saw him and yelled furious insults at him. Monsieur Vincent got off his horse, knelt before this angry man, and asked his pardon with such civility that the next morning this man sought him out and admitted that what he had done was wrong. He stayed to make a retreat at Saint-Lazare as Monsieur Vincent's guest and made a good confession which changed his dissolute life. He became a penitent and a changed man. His Gratitude If he showed such love for his enemies, what great charity could he then have been expected to show towards the least of his children or for those who helped him in some way? He was always filled with the spirit and wisdom of the Son of God, and he always wanted to be faithful to the words of the Savior of our souls. Whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. It made no difference to him whether he received either the least offense or the least favor from you. In either case, you became the master of his heart, of his person, and of all that he had or might have. It would take a separate volume filled with remarkable accounts to tell the full story of his famous generosity and the everlasting sentiments of gratitude that he always preserved for his benefactors. As he said, we cannot have enough gratitude for our benefactors. This was a thought he put into words, into writing, and into practice. In one of his letters he wrote, God has recently given us the grace of offering to the founder of one of our houses who seemed to me to now be in need the same generosity that he had once given us. 
I feel that if he accepts this offer, I will be greatly consoled because the measure of the divine goodness that we had originally received would then be totally returned to our benefactor with nothing remaining of it for us. And if this should happen, wouldn't it be an honor, monsieur, to become poor in order to help him who had helped us? May God give us the grace of being consumed in this way. I am always consoled when I think of this in a way that I don't know how to explain to you. His Heroic Charity Lastly, God in his providence had grand plans for this great man, which required a heroic charity from him in order that he might become a pastor of souls. The Son of God wanted to confide the care of his church to St. Peter, and so he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than Thomas, more than Nathaniel, more than James and John, and more than the other two disciples who were also fishermen? You know that the Son of God asked this question twice more, and you know the answer that the Prince of the Apostles gave. Lord, you know that I love you. You also know the response of the Son of God who said to him, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Here, messieurs, is the example of the most perfect love that we can have for the Son of God, which is to love his flock, to love his church. Why is this, messieurs? This is so because it was the Lord himself who above all else became the most beloved pastor of our souls. St. Gregory Nazianzus called the Lord the true and first pastor. St. Isidore called him the captain of the pastoral art. While St. Clement of Alexandria described him as the shepherd of the royal sheep. St. Peter called him the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And in chapter 5, the chief shepherd. St. Paul, in his letter to the Hebrews, described him as the great shepherd of the sheep. The Son of God, as quoted by St. John in chapter 10, described himself, I am the good shepherd. If you were to ask, what is the chief characteristic of someone who serves as a pastor of souls? The answer is charity. In the words of St. John Climacus, the true pastor demonstrated his love by being crucified. Or as St. Basil also says, one knows that the pastor is good because he offered himself for his sheep and because this is the divine purpose of his mission. It is at this point, messieurs, where we must again say that the praise we give to the memory of Monsieur Vincent is worthy and legitimate, since he devoted himself with such zeal to meeting all the needs of God's church. Again, the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. It has been said, messieurs, that there was nothing that could bring greater sadness or joy to his great heart than the church's good fortune or its misfortunes. As St. Thomas Aquinas fervently prayed each day, may I not be unduly lifted up by the one nor unduly cast down by the other. The same can be said of Vincent de Paul, for he was devoted to the interests of God's church. St. Paul described the tension he experienced in his own life. There is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. This was also true of Vincent de Paul. St. Augustine, speaking of the great apostle, described his daily struggle. St. Ambrose described his urgent care for all the churches. Although he was chained in prison, St. Paul sent his disciples to care for all of the churches, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Crete and Dalmatia, Tychicus to Ephesus, as well as Mark and others to different destinations. Vincent de Paul sent members of his community to the province of Lorraine, to Champagne, Picardy, and to Barbary in Poland as well. 
At other times, he sent priests to Madagascar, where six of them had already died. Three others left for these isles, but no sooner had the ship departed than it was wrecked in a storm not far from port. Four years later, other missionaries departed, only to have their ship captured by the Spanish. Did he lose courage after these deaths, after so many shipwrecks, after so much bad luck? On the contrary, his apostolic zeal proved to be stronger than those trials, which would have dissuaded someone with less courage. He recalled that the universal church had been established by the death of the Son of God and strengthened by the deaths of the apostles, the popes, and of the martyr bishops, and it had spread through the world through persecution and the blood of martyrs, which, according to Tertullian, is the seat of Christians. He had been assured that many of the people of these isles were favorably disposed to receive the light of the gospel. In fact, a great number had already received baptism through the zeal of the one missionary God had preserved there after the deaths of all the others. Do you think, messieurs, he could abandon this priest when he asked for help? Do you think that he could abandon these people who had opened their arms in order to be instructed and who had already opened their hearts and ears in order to hear the words of life? No, no, messieurs, we have nothing to fear, for he could not abandon these souls. Give me the people, the good you may keep. His heart was so vast and so generous that he refused to accept defeat in any of his apostolic labors. He was determined, therefore, to overcome all obstacles. So at the beginning of 1660, he sent five more of his confreres to this faraway island. Concerning his zeal, messieurs, we will comment on three things. The first is that whenever there was a question of a particular mission, a work, or establishment that he saw as useful and honorable, if he discovered there was someone else interested in doing that work, he always deferred to them. He preferred they take on the work and receive all of its benefits and glory. Oh, what other beautiful stories must we pass by in silence on this occasion. Secondly, he never sent any missionaries to Barbary or into any other perils who had not volunteered enthusiastically to undertake such a mission. Thirdly, with regards to the missions, he was personally filled with the spirit of martyrdom. For his part, he wanted, at least in spirit, to fully share in the work of those whom he had sent. He wanted to do all that he could to relieve their sufferings, even at the cost of his own blood and life. It seems to me that we must apply to him the words of a father of the church in speaking about St. Felicity, whose feast we are celebrating today. The mother of seven martyrs, she endured martyrdom seven times, witnessing the successive martyrdoms of each of her children before finally enduring her own. Should we also not say of him what the Holy Church says of the glorious St. Martin? O most holy soul, even though you sought the sword, it did not take you. However, in the end, you were not to lose the palm of the martyrs. I would like at this point, messieurs, to be able to say something about the great qualities possessed by this true pastor of souls, this very worthy superior general, the priest of the mission. But what can one say in such a short period of time when there is so much that could be said? I have told you so very briefly of the love that he had for his own. But you should also be told of the patience, vigilance, and the constancy he had in the midst of his wearisome labors. His patience. You should be told about his admirable patience in both the practice of mortification and in service of his neighbor. You should be told of his personal austerity, which went beyond what is ordinarily considered even to be the most rigorous penitence. He took more than 100 blows of the discipline every morning from the time he was a young ecclesiastic to the time that he was more than 80 years old. Whether he, 
Whether he was healthy or ill, he never desired or sought the least delicacy in his nourishment. On the contrary, he always asked that he be fed with the scraps left over from the community's table. I know about these admirable stories because I have seen them with my own eyes. He slept on a pallet even when he was ill. He never failed to make his mental prayer even when he was consumed by fever. He could thus say in two very different ways, both from the fire of his fever and through the fire of his devotion. In my thoughts, a fire blazed up. Every morning he spent three hours on his knees in church praying, never paying any attention to the pains in his legs. He appeared at the king's council poorly dressed in wretched clothing. This was unprecedented, and our great cardinal, seeing this, remarked to those at court, those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Vincent de Paul, yours was not an ordinary spirit of penitence and poverty. As St. Gregory of Nyssa said so well, in order for a superior to establish his authority, he must be willing to do more than all the others. One cannot reproach this worthy superior general of the mission with the words of St. Leo the Great, the beasts are attacking and the sheep are not protected. While the brother porter was eating, he took the keys and minded the front door himself. If you think performing this task was one that was below the dignity of a general, he would also then go to the kitchen and wash dishes and perform other such duties. His penitence on behalf of others. He did penance not only on behalf of those whom he knew, but also for strangers. He once asked our Lord to hear his prayers and relieve one of his penitents laboring under a violent temptation, which he was then attacked by for many years. He once told someone confidentially that whenever he came to know the sins of someone else, he would undertake harsh bodily penances on their behalf. Where else can one find such a rare example of virtue? Where else can one find pastors animated with the same zeal? Without a doubt, he could say, following the example of the sovereign pastor of our souls, must I now restore what I did not steal? This was an apostolic man, a true imitator of St. Paul, who was willing to be cursed on behalf of his brothers. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. His care for his neighbor. What can we say about his care for his neighbor? There once was someone who demanded Monsieur Vincent grant him some favor he had refused him as a matter of conscience. What did this man do then, Messieurs? He continued to bother Monsieur Vincent with frequent and useless visits. Monsieur Vincent always received him with no show of dismay and without ever being disturbed by such an extreme importunity, which seemed so unbearable to everyone else but him. His sufferings from calumnies. He suffered the most extreme slanders without ever trying to explain or defend himself, like the dumb saying nothing. He chose instead to suffer, even if it meant his silence was interpreted as an admission of guilt. O oh, rigorous modesty, O oh, necessary silence, I respect your laws even though they seem to me cruel in this instance. I will move on, messieurs, without attempting to defend Monsieur Vincent's innocence. The heart of a pastor's task is to be vigilant. In his third homily, St. Antiochus gives this beautiful description. A pastor must be both all spirit and all eye. Ah, messieurs, we can also say this of our general of the mission, truly the guardian of Israel never sleeps nor slumbers. Or even better, what was said by another prophet, I see a branch of the watching tree. Yes, without a doubt, he could also say of himself what Jacob said while tending the herds of his father-in-law Laban. 
how often the scorching heat ravaged me by day and the frost by night, while sleep fled from my eyes. For it is true that he rose every day at four o'clock, and yet every day went to bed later than everyone else. He denied himself sleep, using those precious moments to care for his dear flock. His strength and constancy. His strength and his constancy are worthy of a new discussion here. Virtue is praised whenever it is found, but it is extraordinary to find a person whose long life of 85 years, almost a century, was consumed without any relaxation or interruption by the exercise of virtue. His virtue was only finally hidden from our view by the veil of death, for it is proper that the emperor should die standing. What soul is so cold that it would not be worn by such a beautiful sentiment? Before finishing this discourse, it is necessary that you recognize how he courageously fed souls with the three excellent foods of the church spoken of by St. Ambrose, Jesus Christ, the sacraments, and scripture. When he first started the missions, coincidentally and most appropriately on the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, he began on the lands of the late Madame Françoise Marguerite de Silly, the wife of Monsieur the Comte of Joigny, Knight of the Orders of the King, General of the Galleys of France, and at present a priest of the Oratory of Jesus. This holy and virtuous lady had Monsieur Vincent as her confessor and spiritual director, and she made him promise that he would not leave her until her death. By commissioning these missions to be held on all her lands, she thus became the first founder of the mission. Oh, what a beautiful sight. The conversion of sinners gives birth to the joy of the angels. You have seen Monsieur Vincent in the pulpit completely filled with zeal for the salvation of souls. He preached with a holy vehemence and was filled with God's spirit. He brought tears to the eyes and touched the hearts of all those who heard him. You have seen the deluge of tears come both from the preacher and from his listeners. At this first mission, the people came to him from everywhere. Everyone approached him. All the inhabitants of the parish made their general confession. All the other villages followed these examples, and the people went to confession and availed themselves of the sacraments and the word of God. There were many conversions and changes in lifestyle among even the most indifferent. All this astonished even those who were most skeptical. Mr. Vincent was indefatigable in his work, which had no other goal than of conforming hearts to Jesus Christ, until Christ be formed in you. He brought about a great blessing in God's church by promoting the practice of making general confessions at a time when the practice had scarcely ever been known before. He rescued many people from a most profound ignorance of the mysteries of our faith. He taught many worthy ecclesiastics and great religious how to teach the faithful effectively. He wanted them to preach and administer the sacraments in a simple and familiar yet strong and powerful manner that would also be respectful of the word of God. In establishing seminaries to form a clergy capable of carrying the weight and dignity of their sacred mystery, he participated in this great work that the Holy Council of Trent called a pious and holy work. He had a marvelous respect for priests, and he wanted his confreres to be considered the least among them. He also had a profound veneration for all the orders of the clergy, for the religious in their cloisters, and for the hierarchy. He had a well-known esteem for all the holy and famous congregations, including the Company of Jesus and the Oratory of Jesus. Concerning this, then, I have said enough. Of all the relationships he had with great servants of God whom he knew in his lifetime, 
The most important were the two great lights of the church, the Cardinals de la Rochefoucauld and de Berulle. These prelates were renowned as much by the eminence of their piety as by that of their sacred purple. They both had a very high esteem for the rare merits of the late Vincent de Paul. They both spoke of the important role played by Monsieur Vincent in the great works of this century, for most of which he laid the first foundations. There is not enough time here to tell you of the zeal that he had to maintain the purity of good doctrine, for it is such a vast subject. One can only say that his conduct in this matter imitated that of the apostles. His censure of all doctrinal novelties was based on his respect for the sacred councils and for the holy canons. St. Leo the Great excellently called these the canons formed by the Spirit of God that the whole world reverently receives. The Council of Atiniaco called them the canons established by the Spirit of God. The councils themselves refer to them as the sacred canons. You with your small minds, you who are rebels against these most holy laws, you who are unnatural children and who scorn your mother, the Holy Church, learn from St. Augustine, who repeated what St. Cyprian had said. They will never have God for a father who also do not have the church for their mother. Learn from Vincent de Paul, who diligently studied theology in Toulouse, Rome, and Paris. This is an unjust quarrel against the church, who is the chaste spouse of the Son of God and the common mother of all Christians. The same church shares in Christ's authority, since she is equally infallible today as she was in the time of the apostles. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. The word of our divine master is found in the church, for it is his spouse. He loves it, and throughout the centuries, he animates it always through his spirit. Didn't he also have respect for the authority of our Holy Father? Vincent de Paul, you told us that you were only a week forth. You hid your studies. You hid the brilliance of your learning and your spirit with an unparalleled You hid the brilliance of your learning and your spirit with an unparalleled exercise of humility. He was a preacher, a missionary, and the general of a congregation. All of these positions require a praiseworthy reputation and an ability to teach and to preach, or else they would be without effect. Nevertheless, he wanted to believe that he was an uneducated person. But I, messieurs, I know very well the truth in this matter. He was not in the least inferior even to the Sorbonne, the holiest and most knowledgeable school in the world. He always submitted himself in perfect obedience to the orders of the Holy See. He recognized with a sincere submission of spirit the authority of the vicar of Jesus Christ in the person of him who is the successor of St. Peter. How many of the sovereign pontiffs have explained this in the past? Among others, there were Luke, Mark, Felix, Agathon, Nicholas I, Leo IX, Innocent III, and above all, St. Leo the Great. How many of the councils have spoken in the same way? All of the faithful have acknowledged the successors of St. Peter and have honored them with the beautiful titles of teacher of the faith, head of the church, universal pastor, judge of controversies, and doctor of the world. Philip, the legate of Pope St. Celestine at the Council of Ephesus, was approved by all the fathers of this holy and illustrious assembly when he said that it was St. Peter who judged matters of the faith in the person of his successors, among whom he is still living and will always live. St. Jerome, one of the greatest men in the world, submitted himself blindly to the decision of the Pope 
when he settled the obscure and difficult controversy of the first century of the church's history concerning the hypostasis. St. Augustine, after the Pope had pronounced on the error of the Pelagians, accepting the decrees of the two African councils, even though they were not ecumenical, concluded that the controversy was thus over. He said, the matter is ended. This was a doctrine, messieurs, which delighted Monsieur Vincent's heart because he was submissive to the church, to our Holy Father, and to the nuncios of the Pope. Whenever he was in need of immediate advice on certain theological matters, he consulted the greatest men of the Sorbonne and followed their advice. He also followed all the teachings and the doctrine of the gospel, but only as they were interpreted by the church and not by a spirit of personal ambition or vanity. He perfectly understood these words of St. Augustine, I truly would not believe the gospel unless the church commanded it by its authority. After all this, messieurs, isn't it necessary for us to recognize, once again, the brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel? All the churches honor the great memory of Vincent de Paul because it can be said of him that he honored and served all the churches. Messieurs, haven't all the great pastors of Paris who are so celebrated for their doctrine and their virtue testified to the great respect they have for the memory of the great Vincent de Paul? They have held memorial services for him in their parishes, and others are planning to do the same. Together they have given praise to heaven because of the merits of his life. Pico de la Mirandola once said, to be praised by the good and blamed by the bad is equal praise. This is one of the things that I have not done, and this is because if it is indeed true that public opinion is a good and faithful judge of the merit of the greatest of men, then what reasonable and unprejudiced man could find the least blemish in a son as beautiful as Monsieur Vincent? Monsieur de Saint-Germain, worthy members of this royal church, you have done well to display your own virtue by the esteem that you have for Monsieur Vincent. You have proven your good grace by the desire you had that your church be the one chosen, among so many others that offered, to be the site for what we do as we gather here today. But, messieurs, can we leave this pulpit and hide from you a fact that is as important as the one I am about to tell you? The Son of God, who ardently loved both his church and his mother, had two apostles who were very dear to him, St. Peter and St. John. Having confided the care of his church to St. Peter, he confided to St. John the care of his most holy mother, whom the Greeks rightly call All-Holy. We have had in our days a prelate of eminent sanctity, the great Francis de Sales, the bishop and prince of Geneva. If God blesses our ardent prayers and our own small efforts, we hope for his imminent canonization. He held in his hands two treasures that were most dear to him, his church and his visitation. Not his mother like the Son of God, but his good and holy daughters. In all of his affairs, Francis de Sales prayed to heaven in order to discern God's will. He needed to find two men who were worthy to be confided with the care and direction of his two great treasures. He placed the Diocese of Geneva in very worthy hands, and I need not speak here of the qualities of the man who would take his place there. Then he chose a spiritual father for the worthy daughters of the visitation in Paris, the first and most beautiful city of the world. In preference to all others, he chose the uniquely qualified Monsieur Vincent, who was an excellent copy of the perfect original. He chose a man who was filled with his teachings and the spirit of the visitation, which is to say that he was filled with the spirit of all the virtues, 
and in particular the most heroic virtues of humility, the purity of a perfect self-abandonment, a perfect scorn of self, a spirit of prayer and of retreat, the spirit of the hidden life of Jesus Christ in God, and of a sincere, cordial, pure union with God and his neighbor. Ah, my dear visitation, I know the holiness of your rare virtues. I have everlasting obligations to the father of your holy institute, to your worthy mother de Chantal, and to so many other excellent subjects of your holy order. As scripture says, may my tongue stick to my palate if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem beyond all my delights. And may we praise the choice of Vincent de Paul, who governed you with holiness for so many years and who has shared in your glory and your achievements. St. Cyprian said, virgins are an illustrious part of the Lord's flock. And those of the visitation have been a notable part of the charitable works of Vincent de Paul, this worthy pastor of souls. Finally, since a spiritual father must persevere in serving the interests of the church, we are again obliged to say of our superior general of the mission, that brother who is praised in all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. He fervently embraced the interests of the Holy Church. He often reflected in the presence of God that the true spirit of the church is the spirit of peace and that Christ, the true peaceful Solomon, entered the world in order to found his church and to bring to an end all the wars that had for such a long time agitated the Roman Empire. It was for this reason that at his birth the angels chanted a canticle of peace and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Monsieur Vincent continually resolved to offer himself to our Lord as a public victim in order to obtain peace. As he knelt in prayer before the altar, he sighed over the evils that wars caused in the world. He thought it always ill-advised to take up arms, since this could not be done without doing violence to virtue. He saw that war very often has the effect of giving victories to sin, while at the same time ruining piety and doing harm to the worship of God. He knew that the practices of Christianity are often destroyed in the heat of battle. The sacraments are despised, altars profaned, and priests very nearly prevented from performing the holy functions of their sacred ministry. As scripture reminds us, my brothers have been angry with me. Who is it that fulfilled the role of the Good Samaritan? Who would shed his tears? Who would apply oil and wine to the wounds of the Holy Church, which were even more grievous than those of the poor man languishing on the road to Jericho? He is here, messieurs. It is Vincent de Paul. Through the successful missions held throughout the kingdom, he knew that the ignorance of the people and the sins of Christians were daily growing greater because of the effects of warfare. He came to believe that it was high time for the soldiers to be removed from the midst of our parishes and time to declare a new war on behalf of the gospel and the faith. He prayed to God for peace by means of an extraordinary novena. Every day for nine years, the community of San Lazar prayed for peace. Two or three confreres would receive communion for this special intention. Each day, a priest from the community said Mass for this intention, and a brother took communion at this Mass that thus could properly be called a Mass for Peace. The priest and the brother then spent the rest of the day fasting. There was a table inside the refectory where they sat that was called the fasting table. Monsieur Vincent, as general of his congregation, took care of its business, its meetings, and its correspondence. Even when he was burdened by old age, by pains and infirmities, he never dispensed himself from anything. 
He faithfully followed the same rules as the rest of the community. He took his turn at this novena for peace, the only difference being that he took his turn twice as often as anyone else. Finally, at the end of nine years, a general peace was concluded between the two crowns. After this, it was proposed to Monsieur Vincent that this practice should now be ended, since it was a heavy obligation on a community with many other obligations, and since, without doubt, it could be replaced by other good works. He replied in this way, No, messieurs and my brothers, let us continue persevering to the end, looking forward to the final establishment of peace, and praying that it will never again depart from us. What can you say, messieurs, about a man who was so humble, so full of abandonment, so forgetful of himself, so regular in all his actions? What can you say about a man who was so prudent that you could even say he was wisdom personified, who decided nothing without consulting the will of God, and who accepted no work without an extraordinary indication from the Spirit of God? This question I will not answer, but I leave you to the liberty of your own thoughts and judgments. But you must admit, messieurs, that the praise given by our great cardinal to Monsieur Vincent is well-deserved. As St. Ambrose said, true praise is that which is not sought, but that which is freely given. In a few words, we have witnessed the life of Monsieur Vincent, and we cannot remain silent. We have the evidence clearly before us, so there is no need for us to search for anything further, let alone create proof. What we find here is true reason for giving great praise. Yes, messieurs, the general peace that has been the glory of our monarchy, the relief of Spain, and the consolation of all Europe is the work of the advice, the prayers, and the generous labors of our incomparable minister, who, regardless of the cost to his health, wanted to end the suffering and poverty endured by so many of the poor. It was he who forged this peace by the sacred ties of the most beautiful and the greatest mirrors that one could desire in the world. By the force of his prudent advice, he has joined not only in an alliance, but in friendship, the two greatest kings of the earth, the most Christian king, the eldest son of the church, and the most Catholic king. He then had this friendship sealed with an oath so holily sworn, and which I, by the providence of God, was one of the bishops who served as witness. Without a doubt, this achievement justly merits praise, since these great actions comprise one of the greatest, most beautiful chapters of our history. What must attract the respect of the crowns and the veneration of all the monarchies is that these glorious designs have been formed on the basis of Christian principles. When one is considering the sacred interests of religion, merely political considerations are nothing more than an abomination before God's eyes. A long time before the present peace was concluded, in speaking to a prelate with whom he was very familiar, this praiseworthy prince of the church said that peace must be the work of heaven because it is that peace which the world cannot give. Last June, on the day when our young queen was crowned in the city of Saint-Jean-de-Luz, I said to his eminence that after such hard work, the day must have been an illustrious and glorious one for him. After I said this, he responded to me, Monsieur, I have had nothing at all to do with this. It is God who has done it all. In a word, he was inspired by faith and supported by the vows of Vincent de Paul to be inspired to advise our great monarch to conclude a peace. May you, great prince of the church, after such glorious actions, continue to provide an example of the zeal and the ardor with which the most precious interests of the church must be embraced both now and forever. 
May you be able to make the peace fruitful by the force of good works. May you now be able to repair the breaches that Christianity has suffered during the horror of war. And you, Vincent de Paul, who we believe today reigns in heaven, obtain for this incomparable minister of state, for the sacred persons of their majesties, whom you have so dearly loved and whom you have always served with such great fidelity, for all of these devout listeners who have so much respect for your memory and who have heard with such patience this weak recital of only a partial account of your admirable virtues, obtain, I ask, the help of the graces that are necessary for them to renounce earthly wisdom, to follow the obligations of our holy baptisms, to better regulate their conduct and all the movements of their hearts according to the laws of the Son of God, so that finally they will not falter nor be surprised by the false esteem of men, but that in imitating you, their praise for now and for all eternity may be established by all the churches through the gospel. As for me, while you were here on earth, I loved you as much as myself or my own family, because you so often relieved my pains and my needs, as well as the greatest public needs of my office and my diocese. Since you have obligated me by so many charitable services, make me feel today the trust that you now have before God. Finish in me what you began. Obtain for me the share that I desire of the most abundant blessings of heaven. This is also what I desire for you, messieurs, from the bottom of my heart, as much as I do for myself. Honor and glory to God alone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Incension Heritage Podcast. If you have any questions, please send them to mission.depaul at gmail.com. Be sure to check out all the other Vincentian family resources on our website, mission.depaul.edu.